Hello and welcome to episode two of our journey with autism coming out of the fog. My name is Jennifer Slater Sanchez, and today we have a very special guest with us, Chris Worley, Alabama Worley from the Escape Foundation. And hi, Chris, how are you today? Hey, I'm awesome. All right. So I got to tell you kind of this funny story because in the last episode, I was talking to the listeners and talking about how important it is for people that, you know, have kids with autism or special needs to find their tribe. And so you and I kind of met in a funny way. And I don't even know if you know this whole story, but let's just say I kind of stalked you a little bit in order to meet you in person. (laughs) So On the last episode, I had mentioned to the listeners that I live about an hour, hour and a half from Los Angeles. So, you know, we're a smaller town, but you have a documentary that's been out for quite a while and it's called Heart Child, which is just an amazing movie. And I saw it like on the news that Heart Child was going to be at a local movie theater and it's like an independent movie theater. And so me and a friend were like, we have to go. Like I have to meet this lady because one of the things was that, you know, most of the A-Skate clinics happen, you know, in Orange County or Los Angeles, which is a bit farther from me or some of our families. And so I was determined that I was going to meet you that night so that I could say, how can we bring an A-Skate to where I live in my small town? And so I went there and after the movie was done, I stood there and waited until I think that you guys were leaving the building so that I could introduce myself and say, how can I bring an A-Skate clinic to this? I'm sorry. I was fangirling over you, but I was just so excited to meet you that night. So yeah, that's awesome. Thanks. And now I consider you a friend and a good friend and I just adore you so much. And I just, I, I thank, you know, Jesus that you're in my life and just thank the universe for, you know, letting us meet. So Well, likewise, I'm (laughs) very honored to be friends with you and I'm just so proud of you. I've watched you grow as a mom and as an educator and as a leader and all of your accomplishments. I mean, I, I mean, you're amazing. So thank you. Well, we are here today to talk a little bit about your experience with raising a child with autism. Also just your drive to start, you know, the A-Skate Foundation and maybe just any, you know, tips or hints that you can give anybody that's going through the same thing that we've experienced also. So I have a few questions that I'm going to ask. And the first one, tell me about your son, Sasha. Well, Sasha is 18 now. He'll be 19 later this year. So there's a lot I could tell about him. Um, Man, he's incredible. He has changed so much over the years. When I, when I thought one thing was a for sure thing, it's like, nope, we're done with that. On to the next. And it became a new obsession. And, um, but the, the thing that I've really learned about him is that nothing, nothing is a for sure thing with him because he is constantly evolving and changing and progressing and, for every regression we've had, we've had 10 steps forward. And for, you know, for a long time, it did not feel like that at all. Um, he, he has his driver's license now. That's amazing. He got his license like a week ago. Um, he was in driver's school for a while. We live in a, a city here in Birmingham, Alabama, that has a great support system for special needs um, of all kinds. Even if you have one of those um, what are they? 50, 
four plans. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you have ADHD, they treat you like whatever you need, you got it. So he's just always had someone advocating for him. Even if I was not capable, someone in my family was, and man, he's, he's, he's awesome. That's great. So tell me about how you found out that Sasha has autism. Were there any red flags that stood out to you? Yeah. So when he was born, he was, he was a pretty typical baby. I mean, he, he reached his milestones. He was fine with nursing. Um, he ate foods at a normal age or, you know, the months came through and he, he was just progressing normally until about nine months old. He woke up one morning and it was really weird. I, I remember this morning vividly in my mind. I just remember going to his crib and his mouth was sagging. It's like the muscle tone in his mouth was hanging down and his mouth wouldn't close on its own. It was so bizarre. And I just thought, this is weird. What his mouth isn't working right. Um, so I didn't really know what that was or what it meant, but I knew that it wasn't normal, but days went by and it just didn't change. He became really cranky. Um, he would cry a lot. He had a lot of stomach issues pop mm -hmm. up. Just a lot of stuff just started happening and he was sick a lot. I had no idea. I had Sasha when I was 20 years old. I got married really young. I had children really young. Um, they were my only chance to have children at a young age because I was, I've had some medical issues that were going to prevent me to have kids. So it was, you know, I, I didn't know what I was doing for one, but I really don't think many of us do anyway. So I don't know. He, he also lost his language. He had some words, not a whole lot at nine months old, but the few that he had, he didn't say them anymore. Mm -hmm. So I took him to his pediatrician um, we all thought maybe he was partially deaf. He wasn't responding to noises. Um, back then I had no idea what autism was. And I certainly didn't understand in depth about the science of the brain and the amygdala of the brain that trains itself to habitually shut down during trauma. And for a child with sensory disorder going into a grocery store can be traumatizing to the senses and so you have this amygdala in your brain that it, it's designed to automatically like like slam a door mm -hmm. to something to to some kind of exposure to something that gives you anxiety so when your blood pressure and your anxiety rises that amygdala shuts down over time, it begins to habitually do that. So I had no idea that that was what was going on. And he was not deaf. We had hearing tests. We did all the things. So um, that was at nine months old. So he actually started his early intervention at 15 months old. So mm -hmm. it was really, really, really early. Um, he was diagnosed at 22 months old in between nine months old and 22 months old. I mean, if it existed, you name it, we tried it. There were diets and doctors and therapists and it was, there was no one thing that I think 
I can say made or broke something that would put a spike into his progression or, or um, growth in the way that he was developing. But it was, it was pretty traumatizing for us to all just have this beautiful little boy that couldn't speak, mm-hmm. didn't want to look us in the eyes, didn't want to listen to us, didn't want to be touched, constantly cried, never slept, would eat like two things. Mm-hmm. I mean, he would look at something like mashed potatoes and it would make him want to vomit. Like he would start gagging. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So there were, there were times when, I don't know, he would, there were times when I thought maybe, maybe he didn't have autism and maybe it was just, you know, something going on in his brain that was just rapidly changing and developing, but it was such a yo-yo. there was such a spectrum of progression and regression in the beginning that, I mean, it was just a whirlwind. And it's Mm -hmm. sometimes it's like, if I didn't write things down, I would probably try to habitually forget most of it. Yeah. Well, and you know, I talked about on the last episode, I was 35 when I had my twins and I was devastated, you know, when Jacob was diagnosed. I mean, I, I told people that I couldn't even say the word autism. I would call it the A word. Literally, that was what I referred to it all the time was the A word because it would make me physically nauseous to, you know, even say that. So you were 21 years old, I guess at that time, 21, 22, then when he was diagnosed, how did you feel? How did you feel at that time? Honestly, I was kind of a baby myself and I still didn't know a lot about me because I know I I don't share a lot about my childhood, but it was very traumatic and very unstable. And we won't go into all that, but there are a lot of things that I went through in my life in general, on top of um, basically going most of my life with severe ADHD, or at least most of my childhood and teenage years without an answer or understanding. I just thought I was a bad kid. Like I was an awful kid. Mm-hmm. Um, so really him being diagnosed with autism, I felt kind of relieved because I related to him mm. in so many ways. And, and I understood more about myself and I understood and learned more about my own anxiety and why my reactions were the way they were. I didn't, it took me many, many years for me to get to a place where I truly understood it, but that I actually started my own journey with understanding what was wrong with me Mm -hmm. through his diagnosis. And so I began to, I would start experimenting with things with myself because what helps me must help him. Right. Like that's how my thought process was. So I was also a very sick child mm-hmm. um, with cardio issues. I had a lot of autoimmune issues. I had pneumonia all the time. I had this, this brain thing going on. Like, and then when I had my kids and Sasha was diagnosed with autism, like literally shortly after he was diagnosed, I went into congestive heart failure, had an open heart surgery. He's then now three-year-old, a three-year-old. I have an 11 month old and I'm just, it's like, I, it felt like time just stopped and everything was blank because I was so overwhelmed. I had no idea how to process his challenges and take care of myself. 
So I kind of neglected my own health for a long time to be able to help him. But in the process, I learned that, you know, I had a lot of brain things going on um, for several reasons. I had a hemorrhaging happen during an open heart surgery that ended up hemorrhaging on my brain, but also my life as a child and the way that I, I, the things that I experienced in my ADHD going undiagnosed and untreated for, I don't know, 16, 17 years, all of those things also affected my nervous system, my amygdala, my ability to retain information, my memory started to slip, um, my focus, my attention, like it, it was the whole, it was like I was in a whole new world. So his therapy became my therapy. And okay. I was literally on, I was literally on a mission to help him get better. But as that journey went on and on and on, I was, I mean, I couldn't afford 50 grand a year for a therapist, right. you know, and um, I even ended up like getting a job at one of the insurance companies so that I could learn the ins and outs of all the diagnosis codes and understand how to get his therapies paid. Because I mean, when you understand the ICD-9 codes, then you know how to file insurance and you know how to talk to doctors, you know how to talk to therapists. And then all of a sudden insurance covers everything. Oh, interesting. So, yeah. You know, I, I needed that. And so I, I spent a lot of time studying, reading, learning, listening to audios, um, conferences, like, oh man, it, it was like a vortex of information, but it worked and it helped. And yeah, um, yeah I, it, ADHD back then wasn't real to people. I was going to say, I think, I mean, and, and Sasha's a couple of years older than my kids, and I think at the time that um, our kids were diagnosed, they were calling us like refrigerator moms or saying that we put our kids in front of, you know, the TVs too long. And that's why our kids had autism. And I mean, this is only 18, 15 years ago, but yeah, my health things have changed in the last, you know, a couple decades. I think that you brought up something though, so important because I do think that at least in the early times, and maybe it's, you know, when the kid is little and they're getting diagnosed, but maybe it's even a teenager that's getting diagnosed is that we tend to kind of put ourselves to the side mm -hmm. because of that window of opportunity to want to do something for, you know, our kiddos. I mean, I put my doctorate on hold for a really long time. That was a lifelong dream. You put your health on hold um, for a really long time, but I don't know about you, but one of the, um, kind of analogies, I guess, that I, I kind of try to live by is that one of being in a plane. And if the plane's going down, you want to grab the oxygen and put it on yourself before you do like your child, because you have to be well to be yeah. able to take care of your children. And I think that's really important. Well, one of the things I do know about Sasha is that he used to love car washes. I don't know if he still loves them. And from what I can remember, they had to be specific car washes. But one of the things I just adored about you and still adore about you is the way that you cultivated that passion. And I think you took him to a, a car wash convention one time. Now he's into snakes. So do you have any advice for others, parents whose children might have something specific that they're passionate about? 
Oh, yeah. So Sasha's car wash obsession, man, there were so many things about that that I did not understand until years and years later. Um, he once he okay we went to a couple of car wash conventions we went to one in in um where did we go we went to las vegas we went to one in nashville he got to know the people that's amazing email them but the thing about it was when he would go through a car wash it had to be his favorite was a water wizard (laughs) 2.0 and um that one had like one sign it was simple it was on the left side there were no signs on the actual machine so when the machine went over your car you never lost track of what stage the car wash was in the sign was on the left on the wall and it never moved as car washes evolved they changed things and then he's like it makes no sense like he (laughs) was into the engineering of what best helped the customer like I couldn't understand that quite as much at the time but he he knew when one little spout was not working right and and moving right and he was like nope the triple shine's not going to come through because this spout is jammed and blah 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 and he got to know the um one of the car wash owners in a here in Alabama at a local car wash and his name was Mr. Bob and he gave him these equipment books and he would just like fiddle through them at night and kind of look at the things and but the thing is is the older he got and the more social he became the more he realized that that was not socially acceptable to say hey everybody let's go to the car wash interesting and it was a little bit embarrassing for him but as sad as that was for me to see his love for car washes um, die down, I also realized, you know, this could be a good thing because he's picking up on social cues mm-hmm. and he'll work this out. Um, he's always been, he's always loved snakes and wolves. We have two German shepherds, hence the wolf thing. I mean, we're not going to own a wolf. Um, we had a snake, but she passed away last year. And, but he's also volunteered at a reptile store, Um, close to our home for almost four years now and that love for reptiles has actually gained him a job at a local park here in Birmingham and he goes and every Sunday and he feeds the 75 animals in captivity there and cleans their tanks and helps the the core guy that works there with him so this is something he now wants to go to college for he Mm -hmm. could go into biology he could work at the zoo I mean I never thought I'd be picking up a snake. (laughs) It's like, hey, mom, get a picture with this one and this one and this one. I mean, I had to learn what he loved because Mm -hmm. a big part of his identity is to learn confidence, to overcome his sensory overstimulation in public in order to be able to involve himself in the things he loves and genuinely I guess like it's hard for him it's still really hard for him to show humans love but I know he knows how to love because Mm -hmm. I see it in the way that he communicates and takes care of animals so that's that's a huge accomplishment that I sometimes overlook as a parent because I mean, he still doesn't like hugs. He still doesn't like to be touched. He still doesn't tell me he loves me unless like I say it first and it's prompted, you know, like these are just things that I had to surrender to. And I guess I'm okay with it. 
sometimes I try to talk myself out of being okay with it, but I'm just like, no, I mean, I can't force him to be the way I think he needs to be. And I can't force him to do something in a way that I think it should be done. Like he's got to be able to find his way if he's ever going to make it to the way that society thinks is accurate, or I think it needs to be, he's got a, he has a journey he has to do, go through to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I think a lot of his early years though, really have helped evolve him into who he is today because he remembers the meltdowns over the stupid things. Interesting. He, we talk about him sometimes we yeah. talk about it. And sometimes he crosses his arms and he's like, I don't want to talk about that. Mm. And I'm like, well, let's talk about it anyway. Because <laughs> now I mean now he's 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 learning to be around younger children and younger children are really loud and are impulsive and cry and a lot of young children these days are developing ADHD Mm -hmm. I mean it's like it's all coming back again and for him to be able to self-regulate and tolerate being in a a party a birthday party holding a bunch of snakes with a bunch of screaming children is like one of the biggest accomplishments that I never thought I'd see. That's he's amazing. driving, he's mm-hmm. accepted at the college, he's working. I mean, doctors told me, I mean, there was a time when he was so aggressive. I tried to restrain him once, um, you know, restrain as in like, sit down, put him in my lap, put my arms around him. He headbutted me and cracked my sternum. It was already wow. weak because it had been sawed through from an open heart surgery, but I had to have reconstructive surgery on my sternum mm-hmm. because of him, yeah. <laughs> like, not because of him, but I'm like, you did this. It's not like that, but his behaviors were so severe back then. And now the same, the things that bothered him so dramatically back then he's capable of breathing and self-regulating and removing himself from the situation but I mean a lot of that I think does have to do with you know just therapy and the schools and all of that but also skateboarding yeah I mean, and, no, and that's actually where I want to go next is you started the A-Skate Foundation. So tell me how his love of skateboarding inspired you to start the A-Skate Foundation. Well, I was kind of at a low point in my life when skateboarding came into our lives. Um, We were doing hyperbaric therapy here in Birmingham. A new center had opened up. We had about three to three and a half hours in between each dive and we lived like 40 minutes away. I wasn't going to drive home then drive back. I didn't have money for gas like that back then. So we went to a local park. There was a skate park there and he didn't want to play on the playground. He wanted to go watch the skateboarder. So I went to a local shop and I bought a skateboard and I just took him in between hyperbaric sessions and I held his hand and I rolled him back and forth. So One of the things that I have learned, I didn't understand it, but I've learned this is that the movement stimulation and one-to-one social engagement opened a channel for us to get to learn him and to understand how he needs to be approached. 
But skateboarding offered a movement that was mainstream and accessible to everyone. And I knew he wouldn't be rolling around on an exercise ball as an adult in order to self-regulate his anxiety and emotions. And the skateboard connection just made sense. Like in the realm of vestibular and proprioceptive stimulation, like I noticed his communication was different when skating. And his expression, his, his expressive and receptive language changed. It was just different. I didn't know how to understand it back then, but there became, there was like, basically it was like there was a window of time where this role reversal became consistent after skateboarding, where he would actually talk to me and communicate and engage with me. And he would, he would be the one initiating the conversations. And this was huge for a mother of a child who didn't like to be touched and didn't like to speak. And I didn't realize at the time, but skateboarding became a way to train an over hyperactive nervous system to be calm, which in return naturally transformed him into a social being that did not appear to come out of him very often. And when one cannot be social, they're, well, basically one cannot be social when their body is in a state of defense. So there's that part of the amygdala that, that I spoke about that can habitually train itself to shut down over traumatic experiences. And that includes for a child with autism, going to the grocery store or going to his dad's house a day early. So I had to learn like I believe that this part of his brain affects his focus, his attention, his memory in a way that needs to be studied more. And I learned about, I learned a lot about that in the polyvagal therapy or the polyvagal theory, which means like in psychotherapy, it offers um, co-regulation as an interactive process that engages the social nervous systems. And this has to do with a vagus nerve and the 12 cranial nerves. and learning about these parts of the brain and their function were vital to his progress because it was more than a therapy band-aid it was conditioning his brain to actually change and so the movement on the skateboard became so important because when he would have a meltdown early on before he knew how to skate i could put him on his stomach and roll him back and forth down the hall and talk to him and then he would talk back to me. Mm -hmm. If I was able to find a way to pause, I, I, one of our code words was pause, like pause. That was kind of like freeze, let's start over, let's figure out what we're trying to tell each other. And if I could get him moving and get his brain stimulated and in that window of opportunity where we could communicate, then I learned to basically read his mind. And then I knew how to better communicate with him without triggering him. Um, yeah, so with A-Skate's formation, all of, all of the above that we just spoke about is basically how A-Skate manifested, but one of the biggest challenges that I had as a mother was watching him have zero to do with his baby brother. Mm. I mean, he didn't want anything to do with him. Mm -hmm. He just ignored him. But when they were on a skateboard, they were paralleling very easily. They would 
not necessarily play together at first or interact together, but he was watching his little brother. Mm -hmm. He was doing things and watching his brother watch him. So even though there may not have been language in the beginning, I knew that, that he was thinking. So it's really hard to understand what is going on in the brain and in the mind of someone who doesn't speak words. And that's how it felt early on because he didn't speak words very clearly and consistently until like well into elementary school. Interesting. So, so yeah, skateboarding was so important just personally because it got him to look us in the eyes, finally open up and say words and talk to us and engage in a relationship with his brother. Um, here in Alabama, I started getting together in little small groups with other parents at um, church parking lots on makeshift ramps. And then I turned in, it turned into like me being, I was known as this like lady who had skateboards. <laughs> and like people would meet up at the church parking lot. So I saw other parents were experiencing exactly what I was experiencing. So I knew that there was something to it. There was something brain and science related to movement, but in a way that was basically like a, in a lifestyle that was normal and that we could teach our kids to coexist in. Yeah. And And I, I was going to say, I've been to a lot of a skate events and I know that there's benefits for the children involved, the volunteers, my goodness, siblings, parents. There's just something about when you're around other people who truly, you know, quote, get it like you do. Um, What advice would you give parents who might feel alone in the world of autism? Because I spoke in my last episode that even though I had my family and, and, and my friends, you know, around me, I still felt alone because I didn't know anybody else who was going through the same thing. So any advice that you would give people? Yeah. I mean, try everything at least once, Mm -hmm. you know, and a lot of things aren't going to work or they may not be helpful the first time. Go into something very prepared. Like if your child doesn't like wearing helmets, let them like, choose a reward system and let them practice it. But if it's in general where you feel alone and you just kind of, you're like living this life, like a lot of us parents of the older kids did early on where there weren't, there wasn't even much on the internet back then. Like now there are resources, people are doing things. There are online things going on. Let your kid have a tantrum if they need to have a tantrum. Mm -hmm. Like we can't just stop everything and make our kids shut off because it's not socially acceptable for them to not be doing what they're doing. Like there's a reason and we have to learn how to communicate and figure out why. And I like to take things apart and put them back together in general. Like, I don't know, like I used to help my dad put brakes on the car and change the oil. I can't tell you how to do it now, but I used to love doing it with him. If someone is with me, and as hand over hand or showing me, I'm very visual. I think that a lot of our kids are like that. And parents probably are a lot more like that than they think. Mm -hmm. And I think that being very honest 
and you know what? Who I remember, like you said back then, they called us refrigerator parents. Like we could put our kids in front of TVs and let you know what? I did put him in front of a TV a lot of times because I needed to sleep. There were times I put him in a car seat, put him on top of the dryer. I did the same exact thing. Yes. So it would seem like we were driving in the car so that he would fall asleep. I did the same exact thing. (laughs) I would sit there and I would put my arms around the car seat and I would put my head down and I would just get a nap at 3 a.m. because he was screaming, Yeah, but he was in pain. He had a lot of stomach and ear and scissors, you know, whatever, but just be honest. Like who cares what people say and what is going on like that is going to open doors and draw the people to you and your family that you need to be in and that's how I found my tribe is just by being honest with myself and going for it like trying things and meeting people and honestly I'm a complete introvert most of the time like for me to be in the position that I am and be forced to have to like talk to people and have a camera around sometimes like that really freaks me out yeah I still don't like it but I had to learn how to overcome those things too um I had to put my brave pants on and like get out there and actually let him have a meltdown and not worry about what other people are thinking about it. And man, my mom is actually one of the people that really taught me how to do that. She was at Toys R Us with Sasha once. He wasn't talking at this time. He was probably four years old. I don't even remember exactly how old, but he was freaking out over something and he would not get up off the ground from screaming. So she got on the ground with him and started beating her hands on the ground and like <laughs> pretending to cry with him. And he looked at her like she was crazy and he just snapped out of it. Yeah. I don't know what is going through their mind or, you know, they have something on repeat that is telling them that something is not going to happen if this happens or some kind of social or, communication cue that has made them think that something is not going the way that they thought it was dang I mean these were days that (sighs) we look back and laugh now right yeah and what's crazy (laughs) is that he puts me in check most of the time now like wow okay although I would say and, and actually I think you said something important and that was giving ourselves a break too I mean not yeah. caring what other people think but also giving ourselves a break and funny story we were in Home Depot this morning I was buying some plants and my five foot I don't know six inch um, hundred and something pound 15 year old decided he wanted to ride inside of the cart and so I'm sure there were people that were walking by us going what in the world but it's kind of that same thing like okay. You know, those who matter don't mind those who mind don't matter. I'm never going to see these people again, whatever. If that's what I need to do to get done with my shopping, so be it. It is. And honestly, when you find the people like we have, so we've been so blessed to all find each other. And it's funny because most of my really close friends, I see them only when I'm traveling with escape. I mean, there are very few close friends here that have my back like you guys do. And I don't, I don't know if it's because they don't understand the lifestyle that we are forced to live in or that we've even created for ourselves, or that we've developed in like, 
a protective mode. I wonder too, sometimes did we create this to like, you know, protect ourselves, protect our family, protect our kids. Yeah. Possibly. And, and maybe, and that's okay if we did, but I mean, it's some of the best memories that I'll ever, I'll ever have. Like I I don't remember a lot of things these days after all this brain stuff I'm going through, Mm -hmm. but the things that I do remember are usually the good memories and you guys all have a lot to do with that. And, um, my best friend, Elisa, and like, I don't think that I would be as happy of a human as I am right now without have ever founding, like finding my people and have ever been able to found Oh my gosh, I can't speak without <laughs> <never> <laughs> <To> find. <laughs> find a space for Sasha yeah. to walk into and just do whatever he wants. It's not like he gets to do whatever he wants, whatever he wants, but like he walks into an ice skate event environment and if he wants to skate, he can skate. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we have music stations, art stations, different transition stations where we're giving grants to kids to build their skateboards or paint on skateboards or, you know, whatever it may be. But it seems like there have been very few kids that have ever come to an event and walked out unhappy. And if they did walk out unhappy, the parents usually have said this, this, and this were going on this week. And this went on today we're going to try it again next time. And they come back and it works. I was going to say most of the people that I talk to at the ACE gate events say, and, and not all the people, but some of them, it's the first time they've ever taken their kid out in public for something. And I'm like, why do not be scared? Do not be ashamed for how your, your child is going to act. But I feel like they do come to these events and they feel like, oh my gosh, every other family here or every other child is like, you know, my child is like me and it's just a really safe place for them to feel. And if their kid is having a meltdown, we all get it because we've all been there at some point or another. Yeah. You know what? I think that it's, I think it's really possible that I have been in those moments a lot more than I probably would like to admit when it comes to not taking him places. Mm-hmm. Not only because I didn't want, I don't know. I really don't know what the thought process was then because, you know, you go through all these emotions of processing the reality of what your child's future could be like and what your future could be like as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's just really hard to imagine all of that coming down on you like a weight but then it's hard to even get out in public and deal with it. Yeah. My outlook, I know that I went through a stage where I was probably totally depressed and Mm -hmm. I had no idea. I mean, there's no way I couldn't have been depressed with two toddlers, me struggling to breathe, having open heart surgeries, like spinal surgeries, brain hemorrhaging, like sick all the time. How could I have not been depressed? I look back and I'm like, how am I alive right now? How? But I do, I vaguely remember these moments where I didn't want to go out anywhere or take him anywhere or introduce him into new environments because I was so 
mentally drained and exhausted. It's like marriages fall apart or, you know, marriages, a lot of marriages shouldn't even have been marriages to begin with. And we don't like to admit that because most of us, you know, we're going into early marriages at an early age because we lived weird lives too. Like we didn't know what love was. We didn't know much about our own selves. And here we are having children with people that we're going to divorce. And now these children have these disabilities and we're stuck having to bring them in between two families, but children are the redemption, right? Mm -hmm. So aren't they, their journeys are what changes us, even in the midst of split families. So it's like having to deal with marriages falling apart, physical sickness, mental sickness in your child that overflows into your own self, trying to like have this other child have as much of a normal life as he can but honestly he didn't because I was constantly dragging him around to Sasha's therapies and he had less one-on-one attention with me than I even had on with myself like it was or with Sasha it was awful like it was an awful time in our lives but we all learned a lot about life and it was I'm, I'm thankful that that was my humbling season mm-hmm. in life. Like the, it was a very long humbling season. Trust me. Yeah. <laughs> like, we still have some humbling seasons as Sasha goes into adulthood and hopefully he can be as independent as he possibly can one day. Well, Chris, I just want to ask one last question. And that is how can people find out more information about any upcoming a skate events or even bringing an A-Skate event to their community like I did. Yeah, so we have a website. It's ascate.org. With this whole pandemic, we're really trying to figure out the best way to restructure A-Skate because our events went from makeshift ramps in church parking lots to now we have programs all over the United States and a couple of other countries. And sometimes our events gather anywhere from 300 to 700 people. And that's just not really safe when it comes to children that have, I mean, a lot of our children um, have autoimmune issues. So we are now working toward a new restructure where we're going to have an online presence. We're going to use some of our grants to be able to send out equipment and supplies to children so that they can follow along with online things we're going to be introducing as far as events. I hope we're going to be able to gather at least by the end of 2021 or beginning of 2022 and get back to normal. Um, Yeah. So just go on our website. We have social media, the A-Skate Foundation on Facebook, A-Skaters on Instagram and Twitter. Um, Yeah. They could email us info at ascate.org. And then Heart Child, is that on YouTube? That movie that I talked about at the very beginning where I stalked you to make sure that I could meet you. How can people see that movie? Yeah, so uh, Heart Child is on Vimeo. Okay. And I think it's still on Amazon Prime. I mean, it's on there for me. I don't know. It should be on Amazon Prime, but for some areas, it says not available in this location. So if that's the case, just let us know. And we have DVDs too. We can just mail them out. Oh, that's awesome. I I just think it's such a nice, comprehensive story. 
or documentary about your story too. You know, today we had a short amount of time to kind of smush it all in, but if they really want to see the the whole story and even Sasha out there skating on that ramp, I think that Heart Child would be a great um, movie for them to watch. Yeah, it's a great movie. Um, man, if I could just go back in time and get back into that era, I would, I would, I would do it all over again. It was so fun. It was fun. It was a fun age. It was fun just getting, watching Ace Gate grow. I mean, of course there are things that I would do different to make it all better, you know, and easier for people. And, but man, I don't know. I'm really proud of him learning to um, travel, learning that, you know what, let me just say this for parents who want some, some additional advice, travel with your children and let them have as many meltdowns as they need, but get through it because traveling for Sasha, it changed him as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, him learning how to go through airports, um, taxis, subways, trains. It was never easy in the beginning, but man, once we got it down, it was like a science and he had such a great life mm -hmm. and learning to grow and meet different people. And he's, it, there's live life and show them as much normalcy as possible. Yeah. And just allow who they are and what they are and how they're going to react to things to just happen. If you know your child well enough, then you know how to prepare for things. Yeah. And if you can just get to that point where you can get through the beginning stages of how to teach your child to jump hoops through transitions, they just become, it's like, it becomes fluent for them. He, he can do anything now. That's right. He's about to be 19 and he can do anything now. He self-regulates better than I do. So, That's great. Yeah. Well, one last thing is that Acegate is a nonprofit. And so one of the ways that, you know, people can support the Acegate Foundation is if they go to the van store and they buy those cute little bags that the, the clerks at the cash register try to sell you, each one of those bags does support the Acegate Foundation. And I believe that Vans does their limited edition sensory friendly shoes every April, right? Through Vans and that supports the Acegate Foundation? Well, it does, but it does hop between us and Surface Healing. So last year, um, the Vans shoe collaboration benefited Acegate. Okay. And this year, the shoe collaboration benefits our friends at Surface Healing. And yes, the, the reusable bags, there are two types. There's an Acegate bag and a Surface Healing bag. And a portion of the proceeds from each bag sold goes to whichever organization, the, which bag is purchased. So, awesome. Yeah. Yes, they, that's our, our main support. And well, we I do plan on having Izzy on on one of these days too. So, oh, um, no. you know, you two are my, my favoriteest people in the whole wide world other than my family. So, um, well, I want to just thank you so much. It was such a pleasure to have this time to talk to you and hear your story today. My next episode for any listeners out there, I'm going to talk about the importance of Autism Awareness Month, because as we know, April is coming soon. Um, I think by the time this podcast is out, we will be in the first couple of days of April, but it is an important month because we need to continue spreading that awareness 
and teaching people about autism and our kids with autism. So that's going to be on episode three. But again, just want to thank you, Chris Worley, for joining me today. And I'm sure we will do this again sometime in the future. Yeah, thanks for having me. And it was really awesome seeing you. Thank you. You too. If I